Thanks to Bambi for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. HR salaries average around $70,000 a year, but Bambi gives you an HR manager for $99 per month. Get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com slash dream job. B-A-M-B-E-E.com slash dream job. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I just wanted to send a big hug to everyone. It really feels like a lot right now. Um, I had to cancel the Arrive Summit. I had to cancel the retreat because I didn't feel like it was the responsible thing to do to have these events when there is some horrible virus going around. And I just want you all to know that you're not alone. If you're starting to feel really anxious or overwhelmed, you're not alone. Like it's a good time to give yourself a little extra compassion and maybe take a nap or take a bath or just be less hard on yourself right now. It's, it's a lot. And, um, I felt really sad that I had to cancel and I have to say I was met with some more resistance because, um, both the venues that we had contracted with both the Marriott and also the Airbnb house, which we rented for the retreat, neither of them have made it easy. And so at this time I'm, I'm still fighting because they want to charge me the full amount. And it seems completely self-explanatory why I would need to cancel. So that's been really stressful. And yesterday I just felt like crying my eyes out because, um, I have friends who are in quarantine. I have, um, people I know personally who are suffering right now. And then on top of it to, to know that not every company is being, um, as considerate as possible is stressful, but thank God it's only money. And anyway, I just, I feel more than ever like it's important that I'm doing a podcast because you guys can hear this in your home. And I feel like, you know, over the next few days, I want to think about what else I can do um, to be there for you guys. If you're going to be staying home more, if you're going to be not as out and about, you know, what can I do to show up for you? So feel free to DM me in the meantime, feel free to email us and um, just know that um, I'm thinking about you constantly and you're not alone. It's, it's a really intense time and I think we all need to just be um, really compassionate to ourselves. And, and the truth is that we're constantly running and we're constantly focusing on so many things that sometimes are not really of the most importance and maybe it's time to really tune in to what matters most and to try to be present and grateful and just try to be, you know, home and wherever we are. So sending everybody lots of love. I know it's it's really intense. Like I heard the NBA canceled their games. I heard that Tom Hanks was diagnosed. That That is just so it's just crazy. I, I've never really experienced anything like this. So just know that you are all with me all the time and, um, and whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. 
All right, so let's get into today's episode. I'm really happy because we're joined by an Emmy award-winning writer and comedian and author, Brian Kiley, and I think we all could use um, some laughs right now. You've probably seen or heard his work because he's been a writer for Conan since 1994, and he's currently the head monologue writer for Conan, and he's appeared multiple times on The Late Show with David Letterman, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and he was just recently on David Spade's show. Um, He performs Dan up all around LA. He's been featured in the New York Times crossword puzzle. And that's really how you know you made it, right? He has 16 Emmy nominations. And if all this comedy writing wasn't enough, he's also an accomplished author. He's written two amazing books, The Astounding Misadventures of Roy Collins, and another book called Maybe Kevin. So in addition to his whole incredible trajectory, we're going to talk about what those books are about and what they mean to him. Without further ado, please welcome the phenomenal Brian Kiley. Brian Kiley, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Are you kidding? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for the audience to get to know you because they've known you for quite some time. Whether they've seen you do your own stand-up or read your work, they've, people have been watching Conan forever, and they little do they know that you are uh, <laughs> the man behind it all. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about all the things you're doing, but I want to go back to... How the heck did you get here? Did you know from a young age that you wanted to do comedy? I did. I really did. I always loved jokes. And I remember, it's so funny now when you think about some of the things. I remember getting in trouble for, I took a joke book out of the library and I was supposed to return it because it time ran up. And my brother said, we can renew it. And that seemed too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I'm just going to hold on to this. And... It, of course, created problems, <laughs> but it's just so interesting that even at a young age here, I was, you know, seven years old or whatever, like, oh, I'm holding on to this. Yeah. So, yes, I, th- I loved that. And I loved, you know, getting laughs in the classroom and at home and all that stuff. And I, I, I love the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, so good. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, I didn't know how to be when I was a kid, they didn't have comedy clubs. You know, you'd never heard of anything like that. Okay. Okay. So, you know, you'd see a, com- a comic on like the Mike Douglas show, which was like an afternoon talk, like a daytime talk show. Yeah. Once in a while, they'd have a comic on and my mother would be like, all right, Brian, come in and here's the comic. <laughs> you know, so I'd come in from outside playing to watch the comedian. And, <laughs> but I didn't know how to go about that. And I thought, as I got older, I said, well, I knew that, that sitcoms and TV shows had writers. So I knew yeah. that was the thing. Okay. So, yep. So I was like, well, I could do that, but I think I was uh, almost that naive about being a TV writer. You're like, yeah, yeah, you just, you go and do that, you know? Yeah. So how did you go and do that? And is that the first thing you did or did you do stand up before you ever wrote for TV? Oh yeah. I did stand up for a long time. So I started writing jokes when I was a teenager. Okay. Wow. And I had like these little note cards and I think of a joke where sometimes something would come up in conversation that say something. I think I might need that later. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote it, write it down and I'm I don't have those jokes anymore. I don't know whatever happened to those. I'm sure they were awful. Right. You know, and I had like this little box. It was like my mother's recipe box, you know, of just little note cards with my little jokes on it. Yep. And they would kind of happen organically or whatever. Yep. But I started writing jokes and I had my collection of jokes. And then uh, when I was in college, I saw a comedy show at my school and I thought the last comedian, this guy named Barry Crimmins, I thought he was hilarious. So I went and talked to him and I said, you know, I want to be a comedy writer and blah, blah, blah. 
So he was running a club in Cambridge, Mass. called the Ding Ho. And <laughs> so I went to visit him and I brought my jokes. Like I typed up my jokes and I brought them. And he kind of critiqued them for me, but he liked some of them. Yep. And he's like, you know, you can't really make money in Boston writing. Uh, you'd have to go on stage. And I was like, oh, I couldn't do it. Like it was too mm-hmm. terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then I took a comedy writing class at Emerson College over the summer. Uh, it was taught by Dennis Leary. Wow. It's kind of funny now because, he, you know, he wasn't Dennis Leary then. You know wow. what I mean? That's great. Um, so we, in the last class, we had to perform stand-up. And this woman who was a professional comic at the time was like, oh, you should pursue this and whatever. And so I went to the open mic and coincidentally, my friend Barry Kerman's hosting. And uh-huh. so he gave me a good spot and it went great. And I was like, I'm on my way. Uh-huh. So I went back the next week <laughs> and bombed. Right. And <laughs> yep. It became like every other time I'd bomb. Like I'd do well one week and then the next week I'd bomb. And also in college, you know, you've got midterms, you've got have papers. So sometimes you don't do it for a month or three weeks or something, you know? Right. So I started my junior year of college, I guess. And then senior year, I was getting an occasional paid gig and it would be like 20 bucks or something. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting more gigs. And then out of college, I just said, okay, I'm going to go full time. So I was just a comic for 10 years. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and what then, did your parents have to say about this? I think they weren't excited, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I think that they knew that I loved comedy and, and that it always been sort of a, an obsession. And, you know, it's funny, my younger brother went to Harvard. Oh my and God. I think that they were like, I think they put more, like if he said, I'm going to be a comedian, they'd be like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I almost feel like they kind of wrote me off a little bit. And yeah. they're like, all right, we're yeah. going to bet on this, this other guy. Yeah, exactly. Not this guy. You right, know? right. So I think maybe that provided a little cover for me. So you did um, that for 10 years. And I feel like the folks who are in our audience are probably thinking it takes a lot of courage because when you say that you get up and you do really well and the next time you totally bombed, that is so not easy. And I... I'm sure you're friends with him. I'm not. I think he's amazing. But another Boston comic, Bill Burr. Sure, sure. He's amazing. Amazing. But I've heard him say that uh, he sees people like you take one hit to the jaw and they're just out. You know, they're just. Right. And um, his line is, I've seen enough Toyota Camrys to know that most people give up on their dreams, which is (laughs) so good. (laughs) But how do you actually do that? Like, it's easy to say it, but to actually go through those nights where it doesn't go well and then to keep going, I don't think that's easy. How do you? Yes, yes, that's true. And I, it's funny. So I used to do a show on Wednesday nights, an open mic on Wednesday nights, and Lenny Clark was the host, and the show was wild. Like, it was just crazy sometimes. Yeah. And on a Tuesday at lunch, like Tuesday at noon, I would get a knot in my stomach. For like yeah. a day and a half. Yeah. And one time I'm in school, it's lunchtime, and I get a knot in my stomach, and I think, it's only Monday. Why am I getting the knot? And I realized, <laughs> you know, it had been a Monday holiday the day before. So it actually was Tuesday. Like my body knew right. when to get uh, the knot, even though I didn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, it was, yes. You know, I would be so nervous, like unbelievably nervous for years. And sometimes I'd go and they'd, be, they'd run out of time. They'd go, oh, we don't have time to put you up. And other people be mad. I'd be like relieved, like phew. Oh I didn't, my God. you know. But I, the one thing I always seem to bounce back after. Like you know, I remember one show. I there was this bachelor party, and I was you know here I am in college, and these guy these rowdy guys just ate me alive. And then I had to go in the next room, 
you know, 20 minutes later and do another show. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to move this joke first. And I just made some like halftime adjustment. But after just completely <laughs> bombing, and then I went in the next room and had a good set, you know? And wow. I remember, yeah, I remember having some painfully, basically being booed off the stage. And then you have to go to the same club the next night and go on. I think I was resilient and that, that, that this, yeah. I did seem to bounce back from those. Yep. And um, what, what was it that kept you going through it in terms of like, continuing to feel like, no, this is still possible. It's been a year, it's been two, it's been three, but you kept feeling, was it that you had friends who were maybe 14 steps ahead and you could see that this was a viable path? Yes. I, I think that was a big thing. I think that having mentors who liked me and thought I was funny really helped me. Yeah. And I remember when I was, you know, I worked at a supermarket in college and there was, I remember reading in the paper they had uh, Rich Little was performing in Boston mm-hmm. and they quoted one of his jokes and the guy just put amen. And it was a joke that I had written <laughs> like oh my God. four years earlier. Like it just coincidentally, do you know what I mean? Wow. wow. And it made me think it's like, Hey, I wrote that joke when I was 14. Oh my God. And that made me feel like, Hey, I think I can do this. If this, do you know what I mean? What was the joke? <sighs> it's going to seem lame now, but there was, it was a joke about when Reagan and Gerald Ford were running against each other. And I had a joke about Reagan being an actor and Gerald Ford being a stuntman because he was, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So just have Rich Little do the same joke. It was like, oh, this is a professional famous comic and that we're, you know, like I wasn't, it, so you know. good. You wrote that at 14? I did. That's it was not normal. Oh my God. That's <laughs> ridiculous. That's so good. Wow. So little, so little things like that helped me. And, and also when I started, I got some good reviews from the Boston Globe and so on. Yeah. And that kind of thing kind of kept my confidence. And, you know, I had veteran comics. I had some great comics who were encouraging, like Stephen Wright was very complimentary to me and Bobcat Goldthwait and people like that. And that made me feel like, hey, these guys that are famous like me, you know what I mean? I could see why Stephen Wright, I mean, he's such a legend. I could see why he likes you because you guys do these like one, like it's one line and it's an entire story. (laughs) Oh, good. You guys have to listen to Brian's comedy because you'll, you'll just love him as much as a person as you will as a talent. That's, I think that that's what's so unique about you because I've seen you live so many times and everyone's got so much shtick and the persona is so big. And then you get up there and you're just like the guy who lives down the street, like the nice guy who always says hello to you, like does the stops and chats, you know, (laughs) and then you get up and you do this and it's just like, yep, I'm just this person who also likes, you're so unassuming. I think that says so much about you. Well, thanks. You know, it's funny because I was a huge Stephen Wright fan when I started and, and I, I would try some sort of off the wall jokes like him. And the crowd just wouldn't buy it from me. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, he can go on stage and I mean, he has that joke about, you know, I'm moving to another planet soon. So if you have any empty boxes, <laughs> I really appreciate it. You know, if I said I'm moving to another planet soon, they'd be like, no, you're not. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's one of the things you really learn as you start of like how people perceive you yeah. and what they'll believe. And, yeah. and I had a tendency to be too self-deprecating and they were like, hey, buddy. 
<laughs> yeah, take it down a notch. You know? Yeah, that's true. But you're so relatable because your material is really about your wife and your kids and it's all, and it's so clean and it's so funny and it's so rare. I feel like that people can, I think that that's hard actually. I think clean is actually hard to do funny and you do it such a good job. Well, thanks. I mean, it used to be, you used to kind of be rewarded for it in terms of, you know, the dirty acts would kill in the club, but then they couldn't get on TV, you know? Yeah. But now everyone's going to get on TV, so it really... Or it doesn't matter, yeah. It doesn't matter anymore, you know? Okay, so you say that you did stand-up for 10 years straight, and then what happened next? Well, uh, all right, so there's two parts of the story. So the first one is, so I had some comics who were friends of mine who got hired at Conan. Mm-hmm. And then there was somebody who I knew who got fired at Conan, and they were looking for somebody to help write his monologue. And at the time, I was writing a lot of topical jokes. Yeah. So I would just get the paper every day. It's so funny. You know, it's pre-internet. And I'd get the yeah. paper. And I'd write my little jokes from the news and whatever. And I'd do them on stage that night. So with topical jokes, they, they have a shelf life. Right. And sometimes the shelf life is two days because that story kind of came and yeah. went and people mm-hmm. don't remember it, you know. But then other times, you know, it might be a presidential election and you might have a joke about Bill Clinton for a year, you know, yep. or whatever. Sure. So sure. you kind of have that mix of things. But I had all these topical jokes and they asked me to submit. So I just typed up like 50 jokes for my act. And I sent them in and they called me and they said, yeah. Uh, they said Conan liked it and you start tomorrow so it's like okay oh my god and and the show was very this is the show was about six months old and the mm-hmm. show was very shaky then like we there were constant rumors about you'd be reading the daily news and the New York Post about who's going to be replacing Conan and all this <laughs> right, kind of stuff right. so I kind of went and I had 13 week contracts and I kind of went and thought all right I'll do this for 13 weeks or maybe 26 weeks and maybe wow. put a little money aside and then just go back to doing stand-up but it kept going and the other weird thing about it is, so when, when I was a kid, I went to CCD, which if you're not Catholic, it's like, it's like Sunday school for Catholic kids. And it was at this convent in Brighton, Mass, and Conan went there. Oh, my gosh. And I was in Conan's brother's class, and Conan was in my, so my brother who went to Harvard, That's he was in crazy. Conan's class. Yes. What are the odds of that? That's insane. It's so insane. Yeah. So, and so when he was at Harvard, with my brother, my brother would show me the Harvard Lampoon stuff. You remember that guy, Conan O'Brien? I'd be like, yeah. 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 I, I, I would have walked past him on the street and not known him because I hadn't seen him since we were, you know, 11 years wow. old or something, you know. Yeah. But it's just kind of this weird coincidence that, and we even did the, the Google Maps. Like, we grew up exactly four miles from each other. That is crazy. And I'm not yeah. surprised at all because, you guys, if you know Brian's work, and many of you probably do, but when I, the very first time I saw you, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense when I found out that you have been working so closely with him because you're both these really, really funny, really nice Catholic guys. Like, it's like, it's, it's very much a part of both of you. So um, it makes sense. Well, it's, we both have this sort of Irish Catholic repressed, yeah. you know, <laughs> all that stuff. So I do think I really was able to kind of get his voice oh, yeah. very, very quickly. Because what happens is some, somebody else, a comic will submit a package of the show to be a monologue writer. Yeah. And there'll be funny jokes, but they'll be very sarcastic or they'll be very pointed right. or they'll be right. rare. It's like, it's like, well, that's not his voice. Nope. And sometimes someone would write a joke that, Conan's like, ah, I'm not comfortable saying that. And I think, yep. yeah, I wouldn't be either. <laughs> right, I wouldn't be either. Yeah. 
So little do you know, this 13-week contract turns into, have you been there almost 25 years? More than that. It'll be 26 in March. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. It's kind of insane. It's kind of insane. Oh, my God. That is insane. You guys, I mean, a friend of mine who's, he's actually been on the show, Wayne Fetterman. He was here. He was like one of our first guests just because we're Sure, friends. sure. He wrote for Jimmy Fallon for a year. And when he was here, he said how difficult that is. He was like, I just told Jimmy, like, I can't do this anymore. This is the hardest thing. It's so intense. Yes. Right. Well, people, people do burn out. And then we, there's some great writers that I've worked with here who, who burnt out and decided to go, you know, go elsewhere. But so how do you do that every day? You have to redo it. You're starting from scratch. You're coming up with so much. And it has to be amazing. It's not just like it's, you got to get something done and just turn it in. It's got to be great. And it is every single show. I don't know how you do that. Well, it's funny because, you know, I'd give them like three batches of jokes a day. And batches. Oh my and, God. And I have to say, like, you're usually good for one, you have one good batch, you know? And <laughs> sometimes it's the first batch, you come out of the gate and you get some good ones, and then you kind of taper off during the day. And then other times you rally at the end, but you're not going to have three good batches. It's just, just how yeah. it works, you know? It's, it's but, amazing. But also, I think once I had kids, you know, like a year or so after, you don't have the luxury of, of, of burning out. You know, you have people that need food and shelter that you're like, Oh yeah, I think this kid wants to go to college. I got to do something, you know? (laughs) So, you you know, the people that left to kind of see what's out there tended to be single or at least, at least not parents, you know? Right. Right. But let's talk about that for a second. Cause that's, if, if it wasn't already enough, you, you also continued to do, so many other things like you've been doing your stand-up did you as far as i know you've been always doing stand-up did you take a break no i I really didn't take a break right yeah that's true i think when you've been a comedian for a long time and you start writing for someone else you kind of you want to get your laughs yeah yeah and i also think it's there is a little bit of, of a frustration when you're writing for a show because sometimes they say no. You're like, how about this joke? And they're like, nope. And you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, that's a good right. one. Yeah. Or whatever. And sometimes there are other considerations where, you know, you might have a joke about some celebrity and Conan's like, no, that guy lives next door to me. I can't do that joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever. But when you're a comedian, you have so much freedom. Like you decide what jokes you do and you decide where you're going up and all these kind of things. So I guess I just like that freedom and I like expressing myself and all that kind of thing. Of course, but it's amazing that you didn't make it mutually exclusive and you continued to do that. Well, I had to do certain things. I kind of decided, because people are like, well, what happens if you come up with a joke? Do you keep it for yourself or do you give it to him? Oh, right. Ooh, that's a good question. I never (laughs) thought of that. Are you allowed to use it then? Well, I... Decided early on, I said, okay, I'm going to just give him all the topical stuff. So all that stuff, all that stuff that I had written in my act, all those topical jokes, yeah. I just stopped doing that. I just stopped replenishing oh them. I stopped doing God. So I lost about 25 minutes of material when I started. But I just I said, all right, I'm just wow. going to write personal stuff for me and uh, topical stuff for him. So I wouldn't have to have those sort of moral dilemmas from time yeah. to time. Well, that's even more amazing. You guys think about what he's saying. He's saying that now not only does he have to write good material, he has to write two sets of good material. <laughs> enough stuff that like he's, cover- he's covered and, and you've got enough stuff to go out with all the time. That is really, really a Herculean effort. I'm, that's much harder than it sounds. 
Well, part of, I mean, part of the personal stuff, though, is, you know, sometimes you're talking to somebody in conversation and you say something funny about your kids kind of off the cuff and then you think, oh, I could use that. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right, right. So the, the personal stuff, a lot of it just kind of comes from your real life. So like, you know, like with the work stuff, we did have to going through the newspapers and then eventually going through the internet and the websites and all that stuff. And also I would try to, what I would do is, if I was going out to do a show, I'd try to do two or three shows on the same night and then be home the next couple nights in a row. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I probably was going up maybe, you know, two, maybe three nights a week at the most. I was also lucky because I've been doing a lot of cl- shows. They'd be like, do you want to go on first? Yep. <laughs> and right. I'd, one person, I'd go home and tuck, tuck my kids in or whatever, you know? Oh my God. So, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot to juggle. So what's your advice for Creating material, I think a lot of times, whatever it is that we're pursuing, people are really, really hard on themselves and they overthink things to death and they don't even begin because they don't want to look stupid. What's your advice to someone who wants to pursue their comedy? Like, what, what would your advice be? Well, my first advice to people is don't ruin your life. You know, don't <laughs> ruin your life. Yeah. It's, it seems simple, but I've seen, you know, so when we moved to Westchester when my kids were little, there was this guy there and he had some kind of a regular job, like a, a banker or something. Yeah. And he decided, I want to be a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. So he quit his job and he would write jokes and he would submit them to Weekend Update for SNL. Uh-huh. And the thing is, it's very hard for them to pick one of those jokes because so many people are sending in. Yeah, and know? they have a team of amazing writers on staff. And they have get a team yeah. of amazing writers and it's very, I don't even know, I, they probably don't even take faxes anymore, but in the old days they would do that. Yep. But it was rare that somebody got one on, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And so he did that. And then two years later, we're at the school play and his wife's there with another guy. And you're like, hmm. Oh no. <laughs> you, you know? Oh, no. And it's the kind of thing of like, what are you doing? Like, I have a friend who, he was a lawyer, and he didn't want to be a lawyer. He wanted to write screenplays. So he would wake up every morning, Monday through Friday, from four to six, yep. and he would write work on a screenplay, and then he would go to work. And he'd go to work all day, and he kept his job, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until he started getting, he sold something, and they sold something else, yep. that he was able to quit his job and be full-time. But he yeah. didn't ruin his life. Exactly. And we you always know? say that on this show, like, don't just take the leap, build a runway because yes. you don't even know if you're going to be good at the thing, you know, like yes. validate the idea, get some feedback that could take six years, you know, absolutely. It, it yeah. takes so much longer than you think it's going to. Totally. You know? I mean, everything that we talk about is about start that side hustle because it's amazing what you can do instead of watching Game of Thrones. Like you can get so much accomplished. That's true. Um, So, all right. So what would be the steps to take? Do you feel like for somebody who would love to write for TV that they first should be doing stand-up? Because that was your journey. Well, I think there's many different journeys. I mean, I was fortunate in the sense of I was writing jokes for myself. And then I started writing jokes for Conan. But, you know, I'm a big believer in that the Malcolm Gladwell put your 10,000 hours in. Right. So by the time I got to Conan, I had put my 10,000 hours in. I I knew I knew how to sit in in front of a blank piece of paper and write jokes. So I, I knew I could do that. I think it depends if you're trying to write sitcoms or if you're trying to write sitcoms or if you're trying to write TV dramas or something. Yeah, you don't need to do stand up. You know what I mean? Right. So I guess it depends on what kind of writing you want to do. But I do think there was some Philip Roth novel or where I can't remember which one it was where the 
the character is a writer and he was saying that amateurs look for inspiration and professionals just write. And I think that's a real thing of sometimes people sit down and say, I don't, can't think of anything. It's like, you know, here, we don't, if I say, we don't, I can't think of anything, they say, well, go think of something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't have that luxury of like, yeah. You know? So it is that thing of you just have to do it every day. Yeah, there are times when you can be, oh, I don't feel like it. But once you start doing it, then you feel like it again. You know, like it shouldn't be a chore. It should be like, I like doing this. And I like coming up with a funny joke or a funny idea right. or writing a funny scene or a funny chapter or whatever, or an interesting yeah. chapter or whatever, you know? I, I love what you were just saying about how important it is to just sit down and do the thing. I, I think that quite often we... um we just want it to be perfect and, and we're not sure that it is anything close to perfect. So we just don't work on it. Yes. And how do you get over that? Cause you've written so much material and you just keep writing. You're not, you're not sitting there criticizing it. I mean, I, maybe you are, but it doesn't. Well, I, I kind of also learned cause sometimes you're writing something like say you're writing a story and you, and it could go this way or that way. And you kind of agonize, Oh, should I make him this? Or should he, should he decide this or whatever? I think you just have to make a decision. And some of the decisions I think, well, that's not going to decide the whole thing. Even if I make the wrong choice here, that's not everything. Yeah. You know, you're going to make a thousand decisions every story. And some of it's like, ah, oh, you should have, you've made it too easy for him here. You should, maybe you should have made it more challenging. But it's that thing of coming to a fork in the road. I just, you're just going to stand there all day and not take one of the paths. Just, just pick a path. Maybe it's the wrong way, but then you can come back and take the other way if you realize. Where does you that know? come from? Where does that courage come from to just do it? Well, I, I do feel like I have so many life lessons from stand-up where some of it is you learn not to be afraid to fail because when you fail at stand-up, you're, you're publicly humiliated. It's you awful, know? yeah. And some of those rooms you'd work, whatever they're yelling at you, you know, you suck and all that stuff. But also whatever, you, whatever your physical appearance, whatever your physical flaws are, they're going to be yelling about that. You That's know what not I mean? nice. That's it's not, it's really awful. It's really terrible. But it does kind of build you up some, some tough skin now or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, for sure. I had somebody critiquing a script I wrote recently and he was like, I hope I'm not offending you. And it's like, you have no idea. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Right, if you, only knew. <laughs> if you only knew what it takes to offend me yeah. at this point, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. So I do think that's a thing. And I also think, like, if you're a stand-up, you write five minutes of material, well, that five minutes isn't going to work. You know, one minute of that is going to work if you're lucky. Right. So you do that five minutes, and then you take the one minute that works, and you throw away the, those four minutes, and you write four new minutes. And that's how you keep building. So I kind of have learned not to hold on to things. You know, I had a friend who sent me a script 20 years ago and it was terrible screenplay, terrible. So he sent it to me again recently. And I looked, I was like, this is the same screenplay. <laughs> yeah. In 20 years, you didn't change oh anything. God. Like, are you, are you insane? You know? Yeah. So it's so much trial and error of, okay, you know what? That didn't work. That joke didn't work or that yeah. scene didn't work. And then you throw it away and write the next one and, and, or figure out, this one part did work and I'm going to build off that. You know? Right. Well, it sounds like there's a couple things coming up. That's a theme here. One part for sure is the resilience, but the other part is there's the humility where you're just not taking yourself so seriously. Like it's like, Oh, I'll, I'll write six more jokes. It's fine. Like you're not 
your whole identity is not wrapped up in this one joke so that you can handle feedback. I think that's so important. Well, I do think there's a thing, I hate to say it, but I mean, there really aren't any geniuses, you know, and even the funniest people I know, I, I see them fail all the time because comedy is very hard. Yeah, I love that. And I've learned just not to hold on to things and there'll be another idea. Yeah. This conversation has been so much fun, but before we go on, let's just take a quick ad break. When you're running a business, HR issues aren't just a headache. They can ruin everything. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and hiring an HR manager isn't cheap. It could cost you an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. You'll have a dedicated HR manager who is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. Whether you're dealing with onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. This is month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. I didn't start my business just to spend time on HR compliance, and I know the same goes for you. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash DreamJob right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash dream job spelled BAM to the BEE.com slash dream job. All right. So I want to also talk about your books because recently you've written a couple books. So what made you decide, like, I have this thing to say and I want to write, let's talk about both books, but what made you want to write The Astounding Misadventures of Roy Collins? All right. Well, it's, it happened a little bit by accident. I mean, you know, I was an English major and I love, it's funny because I didn't read that much as a kid and it wasn't until I was like a junior in college that I was like oh you read and you acquire knowledge and you learn about the human condition someone should have mentioned this earlier you know (laughs) and I kind of became obsessed with reading but not until I was like 20 or so you know Mm -hmm. what I mean Mm -hmm. and now I'm obsessed with reading and I always kind of wanted to write a novel but what happened was it was kind of interesting so as a stand-up, I was always critique. Like I'd do a show, and people were like, "You're a really good writer," which was kind of a left-hand compliment because it's like, well, I wasn't up there writing; I was actually performing. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? right. So, but I knew that my strengths was in writing, but I had to work on the performing side because I'd be too nervous, or I'd be too stiff, or you know, whatever. Yeah. So I took some acting classes, really not to become an actor, just to help my stand-up. And then I was taking a class in New York, and and it was helpful, and it was even helpful in my personal life because. I can be too passive sometimes. And I think acting really forces you to make active choices and, and, you know. I love that. So I would go to this class and because I had kids and stuff, I couldn't go meet with a scene partner and have this. It's like, I don't have the time. So I would just tend to do monologues because it's like, yeah, I can memorize something on the train and get up and do it. So that's what I would do. And then sometimes I couldn't find a good monologue. So I just write one for myself and then go up and do it. So when I moved to L.A., my friend uh, Ruthie, who was a real actress, she's like, oh, I've got the class for you. You've got to take this thing. So it's like a workshop. And so I did, did that. And what people were doing was it was mostly women, and it was mostly women doing like a one-woman show. Yeah. And they would write sort of essays from their real life and get what I'm talking about. So I'm, you know, I don't like to reveal anything about me. So I was always making stuff <laughs> up, you know. So I wrote what I thought was a short story. 
And I read it and it went well. And the teacher goes, that's not a short story. That's the first chapter of a novel. And I was oh, like, it so is. Cool. Wow. So then the next week I'd bring the next chapter and this went on for a couple of weeks. And then all that stuff happened with the tonight show and Conan and all that stuff. And we got kicked off the air. Mm. So now I'm suddenly out of work and I didn't want to wear sweatpants and not shave and just sit around. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I was like, yeah. I got up early and I showered and shaved and I got dressed and I would go and I would just go in my guest room where there's no computer, there's no TV, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just, it's like, go in there and write. Don't just spend all day on the internet or whatever. And I would just write a chapter and it was so dark. <laughs> so like, at, so like dark. I, I don't know. You guys, this book is about Roy Collins who accidentally misses his mom's funeral and then, and learns that she committed suicide. And then he's, the, he's to blame. It, yes. And I, I read a part of it and I was like, this is so not like you. I know it was. Oh. And part of it is I, I, like I, when I'd come out of that room, I'd be like, wow, where did that come from? Where you does know? that come Where you, I guess, yeah, you just imagined all of it. It doesn't sound like it has anything to do with your I actual didn't. real life. No, it didn't. It really didn't. And it's so funny because when it came out, they had the, the publisher had this publicist call me and they're like, okay, so this is based on your child. Yeah, no, nope. I made it up. <laughs> So this is uh, coming from your college experience. No, I mean, okay, so this is, and they couldn't, for some reason, couldn't accept that. It's like, it's fiction. Why? Yeah. I'm, I'm not claiming it's my memoir. I'm not, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Why can you not accept that people make things up? Because uh, it's so good and it's so detailed and it's, uh, you really put yourself in like, this person's you can you can feel this person and how they think and and what the world looks like through their eyes and it is unique we've had a couple novelists on the show jennifer weiner was on the show recently and those characters are really her i mean she was this girl who was always plus size and was struggling right, with right. that and every character is really her and you're, yeah, you're not, you're not Roy Collins. No, no. And it's, I mean, there's some passiveness and there's some little things, but no, that really wasn't. But I do think it was very liberating for me because I'd always want to be on the Johnny Carson show and I didn't make it, but I, I would always try to write TV clean and then in the clubs and all that stuff. So this was like, you know what? I had characters and a story and I would swear and it would be dirty and it would be very dark and all yeah. these things. It was very liberating for me. Yeah, and and cool. also it was surreal in parts where there are times when I'd be writing a sad scene or whatever and I'm crying and I'm like, what, uh, what is happening? Like, yeah. like I, I never wrote a joke and be like, Oh, that one, that one really got me. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen. So then if it wasn't enough, uh, which is just the theme of the Brian Kiley world. Um, <laughs> went on and wrote another book called Maybe Kevin. And I've read part of that book as well. And it's beautiful. I love that book because I love how it takes you back to like a more simpler time. Well, I was sort of like, I felt like the first one was the mother characters dominated. And this one, I, it was a little bit loosely based on my dad. I mean, my, my dad was a much nicer guy than that guy, but yeah, you know, World War II guy. And I do think it was super Catholic and a, and a simpler time. And, and, you know, both my parents were so Catholic. When we were kids, we had mass in my house like 20 times. Oh my God. Wow. Like it would be like my parents' anniversary and they'd invite a priest over for dinner and he'd come over and he'd say mass in the living room. 
and then would go in the dining room and have dinner. And that would be yeah. their anniversary. Di- you know what I mean? Oh, wow. So yeah. just, you know, just from, you know, my parents were older and they grew up in the depression and, and my dad was in World War II. And I think so much of that shaped who he was, you know? What did you want people to take away from that book? I, I guess this one thing I think about all the time is, and I feel like it's so true in our society now, is people aren't just one thing. And I think sometimes somebody does a bad thing and that mistake is just defines them and that's who they are. They're, it's like, you know, we all have these different sides and mm-hmm. not everyone's just one thing and somebody can be, you know, maybe a bad parent, but be an amazing grandparent or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So I, I feel like people, we all get sort of pigeonholed and, and I'm guilty of it too, because, you know, we're writing jokes on somebody and we have some celebrity, the take on them is this, and that's, you know, you're not seeing them as a whole individual. It's that they're kind of become a cartoon in a way, you know, or a caricature yeah. or something. So I do think that we all have that, you know, when they said to somebody, you know, you know, you know, somebody meets somebody famous and they go, see a good guy. It's like in that two second interaction, you're going to define the guy's life or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of absurd. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. And I, um, I was taking some classes at UCLA. They have this whole like mindfulness world mm-hmm. now, which in, sure. the end, in the end, I realize I'm just way too anxious to sit down. <laughs> still, but I, was I have there. a little trouble meditating too. Oh my God. My to-do so- list always pops up in my head. Or yeah, like, well, no time. Uh, <laughs> one thing I remember my teacher saying, uh, she said, you know, it's a good idea to start your day with a cup of tea and invite all parts of yourself. You know, the parts of you that self-sabotage, the parts that are brave, the parts that are terrified. And everyone in the class, when she said that, just took this big breath, like of just such a relief. Like we are all so multifaceted. And that's one of the things that I really, it really hurts me about even comics because if a comic says one thing, that people right, don't right. like and you're like oh my god like like we're all perfect like we've all like had the sweetest, yes. cleanest lives and we don't fight and like it's we true. have such shame around the fact that we're not perfect and the fact that you just said that is is so incredible that that's part of what and it's it shows in the book well and it's like you know no one's saying what he did was right or whatever but yeah. that was like it was it's like a road rage incident like he he lost his mind for a minute, God. you know, and, and but, we've all lost our minds. We've right? all lost you our minds and, on camera. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And I'm sure he's not that guy, you know? Yeah. And I do think that there is that thing. Like sometimes people say to me like, Oh, you never get mad. It's like, of course I get mad. Like we all have the whole range of emotions. That's for necessary for our survival, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I just think we, we're all so many things, you know? Yeah. And one of the reasons I love, I was thinking about this actually just the other day. One of the reasons I'm so grateful for comics is because they get up and talk about all those parts that we want to sort of cover up. And we all laugh because it's a release. It's like, oh, someone else is talking about how difficult it is to be married to this woman. Oh, someone else is talking about, you know, the fact that I you know, can't stand my mother-in-law or whatever. And you just feel like, oh, because I pretend I have a false self. And then right, I right. love, like, I love Billy Eichner because mm-hmm. like, we couldn't be more opposite. Like the man says every single thing he thinks. And I wish 
I wish that I said every <laughs> right. thing, I think. And so I feel like that's one of the beauties is like comedians are able to, to bring some of that to light and we can all, it's healing, you know, it's healing to go, yeah, these are all the parts of me that I hide. And these are the things that really do make me sad. But in this room, it's okay. It's okay to talk about it. Okay, so to sign off, tell us, where can we find you? What's next? How do we follow Oh, uh, you can go to uh, briankiley.com and it has my dates. And also, you know, I, I try to tweet a joke once a day, uh, Monday through Friday. So good. I, well, I thanks. follow you on Twitter. Yeah, so good. And I'm trying to work on a new book. So I'm, I'm trying to do some stuff. So let's hope that happens. That's so awesome. Thank you for taking time out of your- Oh my God, this was so much fun. I, this flew by, I have to say. Oh, well, because you're, yeah, you're just cool. That's why. Thank you so much for being <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so much fun. All right. Awesome. I hope to talk to you soon. Brian is such an awesome, down-to-earth, funny, smart human being. And I think it's cool to learn about these other kinds of dream jobs. You know, how do you get to be a writer for Conan O'Brien? So here are some of the takeaways. Number one, there's not one way to do this. There are many different journeys. Number two, put in your 10,000 hours. Number three, amateurs look for inspiration, professionals just write. Number four, make a decision, pick a path, even if it's the wrong way, you can come back and take the other path. Number five, there aren't any geniuses. Number six, don't hold on to things, there will always be another idea. And number seven, people aren't defined by one thing or one mistake, we all have different sides, we are all so many things. All right, let's celebrate your wins. So Joanna posted in our Facebook group and she said, I'm stoked to share my win of the week. I'm shifting my mindset and treating my Etsy business as a business with a capital B. Last weekend, I attended the Midwest Craft Con, a weekend conference for creatives to learn strategies for running their business. I invested the money and time to attend. And most importantly, I made a commitment to be mentally present. It took some prior planning with my day job to make sure I could set aside my emails for three days straight. Wow, totally worth it. I learned so much about content creation, approaching retailers, finding my audience, and even doing my taxes. There's too much to cover in one post. For now, I'll just share one takeaway with all of you. No matter how small your business may be, make it a priority. Sometimes we have to take a leap and start acting like a successful business in order to become one. Next time you find yourself thinking, oh, I don't make that many sales, so I probably shouldn't bother going to a conference, starting a blog, contacting retailers, buying wholesale, talking to CPAs, advertising, etc., remind yourself that your business is worth the investment. Keep on hustling. Joanna, that's so true. Way to go. I love that you're taking a chance on yourself and investing in these experiences that are going to pay off tenfold. And it's so true. You have to believe that this is a winning business before it even becomes one, because that belief is going to be the fuel for every action you take to make this thing grow. I'm really excited for you. You guys can give Joanna some love. You can see her cute handmade gifts on her Etsy shop. It's called Dog Sweater Money. All right, here's another win. We got an update from Rachel, who we shouted out during our listener wins back in October, and she said, I applied for three craft fairs in my city for the spring. I just got my third acceptance this morning. I've gone down to part-time at my day job, and this is helping me feel like it was the right choice. Rachel... This is so cool. I'm so proud of you. It's such a joy to walk through this journey and see your progress. And I love that you're taking the steps to gradually transition out of your day job. You know, we tend to glorify the idea of making it a huge leap, but slowly dialing down the hours at the day job is really the smart way to do it. I can't wait to see 
where all of this is going to lead. Okay. You can go say hi to Rachel. She's on Instagram at raise underscore reusables. You can see all the neat things she makes from upcycled jeans, like cutlery rolls, totes, zipper bags. It's all super cool. If you have a win that you want us to celebrate, let us know. You can post it in the don't keep your day job Facebook group, or you can DM me on Instagram at kathy.heller. I want to thank you really from the bottom of my heart for listening to the show. I'm completely clear that there's a million other things you could be doing with your time. So it really means the world that you're here. We have so many good episodes coming up. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It's 100% free to listen. And if this episode or any episode, if it struck a chord with you, if it inspired you, think to yourself, is there one person who might love Don't Keep Your Day Job? Who do I know who might love this show? Because you have no idea the ripple effects if you can send this to someone and maybe help them see the world of possibility. It really could change their life, seriously. So I want to say thank you to you guys. If you go ahead, especially now with the coronavirus and everyone feeling so low, if you go ahead and share about the show and post it in your Instagram and tag me, if you do a story in your Instagram and you share about the show or my book, I'm going to pick three of you today and tomorrow, and I'm going to send you a gift to thank you for sharing the show because I really do think that right now more than ever, we all could use a little bit of inspiration and positivity. And I think that this show might just make people feel a little bit better as they're home a little bit more. And maybe this will pick up their spirits. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'm going to talk to you on Monday. Stay safe. Have a great weekend.